Happy Friday. How's it going? Happy Friday. It's uh, going well. You sound, you sound so uncertain of that. Uh, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, we're still like we're still recovering from finishing our books, so I think we're just sort of in this hazy limbo state. With Shamak, I know you've gone through the same thing. Actually, not that far in the distance. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, uh, by the way. Uh, we got a uh, Jamek uh, Degani from. Uh, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself? Yeah. I think the. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Matt. I'm hey. uh, Jamek. I work. ThoughtWorks. I'm on sabbatical right now, so <laughs> uh, I'm not working right now. I, I finished the book. This is what I did. I finished the book. It lined up perfectly with my, you know, 10-year kind of long service leave, and I just straight dived into that. But I, I must say, it's really hard to kind of orient yourself after having worked, as you know, many hours of the day. You have your day job, and then you have your night job of writing the book, and especially that last mile of editorial phase that you're just grinding through the review feedback and edits and so on. It's like refactoring code, not like, not so much the creativity of the upfront, but uh, refactoring of the end. I think uh, it's hard to orient back to a normal life. Mm. You have all this time, suddenly don't know what to do with it. And you're That's still in the book, right? I was just yeah. telling Matt today, I feel like, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's just weird. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've just been walking on a fog all week. It's it's. I've never felt like this before. I don't know what you went through, but it's bizarre. So. I started the next thing. I started the next project immediately. <laughs> I haven't even taken any time off. You're insane. Oh man. Well, I guess we officially haven't taken time off either. <laughs> Wait, so you got something else, and then we'll have to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's awesome. Um, cool. So it's, uh, thanks for the uh, uh, audience that's showing up here. Um, we're here to talk about. Uh, data mesh, but I think not in quite the way that you're probably used to hearing it. Uh, we want to explore some of the edges of, of data mesh um, and going to keep this pretty conversational. I think there's much also interested in kind of our perspective on things as well. So we'll, uh, um, we'll kick it off. So I, I guess the basic question that we have to ask you is what, what is data mesh? Sure. I, I tried to find uh, kind of novel ways of describing it, but I, but I think data mesh uh, is a thing that you do to get uh, decentralized data ownership and data sharing and data management, particularly for analytical workloads, for processing uh, data to either train your machine learning models or generate reports and trends or do all sorts of analysis. Uh, but data mesh is an approach to, that, to, to get to that target state of decentralized ownership and decentralized sharing of data, but in a way that it can scale out, in a way that as we come across new sources of data, uh, new places where data resides, new teams or new organizations that own the data, we can still get value, we can still find access this data reliably and get value from it for analytical purposes. What is it the thing that, that you have to do? Well, it has some technical elements, architectural elements, it has some social elements, organizational elements. It's all of those things that you have to do socially and technically uh, to get to that, that place, to that scaled out, decentralized yet responsible data sharing for analytics. And when you talk about scaling, it does sound like maybe we're talking mostly about the organizational scaling to avoid this classic problem of the data breadline where organization grows, but you have a bottleneck somewhere where data is just not getting, not getting cleansed, not getting transformed the way it needs to be to be consumed across the company. Absolutely. It's a social scale uh, angle. Of course, it has technical implications, uh, but the starting point of it is that social and organizational aspect. I think for you know the, the last few decades, our emphasis on how to scale data storage, data access, data processing has been focused on the machine scale, right? Mm -hmm. Distributed file systems, parallel processing of the data, separation of compute from storage to scale out in those independently. All of those problems of scales were kind of machine optimization issues. I think the the, the layer of scale that we have perhaps largely ignored or disregarded because we just didn't have the, I guess, cognitive or time bandwidth to, to focus on it was, well, there actually, this data doesn't exist in, um, you know, isolation or, uh, you know, independently of the people that are generating and using it. So uh, what if we imagine this future? And I think a lot of our aspirations require achieving this future where 
you're you're accessing data that is owned within the organization by different domains. It's generated, managed. Like people who have the context of particular sets of data, they live in different parts of your organization. And mm -hmm. even beyond that, if you think at at the planetary scale, you have two choices when you have those use cases that goes beyond the bounds of organizations, right? You have this either the medical use cases or, you know, customer personalization use cases, healthcare use cases that really go beyond the data that one organization owns, that you need to access data that crosses the boundaries of different organizations. And to get to, to get access to that and give value, and I focus on getting value from data, not so much managing the data or sharing the data, like truly end-to-end getting value from that data, you have two choices, right? You have the choice of becoming Google, like collecting, 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 or this alternative future that you're really sharing data the same way that API sharing kind of works, right? Uh, across the boundaries of trust. Uh, so data mesh is the other, it is a more decentralized um, access to data across trust boundaries, essentially, in a responsible and scalable way. That's interesting. I mean, and you're at ThoughtWorks, and I, I, I've uh, nerded out on, on Martin Fowler's articles on uh, microservices quite often in the way back in the day. And, and how much inspiration did you take from, uh, I guess, the microservices approach? Um, and, and the, what's that? A lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah. Because <laughs> I was yeah. like, it's like, <laughs> really familiar. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot. I think, I think. Um, so, so I, my background has always been distributed computing. So even mm -hmm. as a you know, young engineer, I worked on network protocols, um, you know, for kind of communication. I, I designed routing protocols. I, um, you know, built systems that were distributed. And then the last, you know, kind of decade or so, I went through, you know, knee deep or waist deep in kind of digital transformations that were heavily relying on microservices architecture and organizational structure. And I really appreciated kind of the uh, the scale problem that the scale solution, I suppose, that can microservices can bring to bear, like considering like Netflix of the world, you know, organizations that we look up to um, and give autonomy uh, to people to do their jobs and focus on a, you know, cognitive kind of context that fits in somebody's head, right? You don't need a whole tribe to understand what actually you need to work on and, and what's the problem space is. So, so that, that problem of, kind of cognitive scale or autonomy and, and people scale was solved beautifully by microservices. Mm -hmm. Of course, implementation of microservices looked pretty ugly in early days. Um, we built pretty ugly systems, but then, you know, over time, the technology kind of evolved and made it pretty natural and native and organic kind of to, to build microservices. But uh, so that, that inspired me. And if, if you read the title of, let's say, um, Eric Evans' uh, Domain Driven Design, which is mm -hmm. another kind of influencer on my thinking, it says, domain, oh, hopefully I don't mess this up, somebody can check. Uh, domain Driven Design, addressing complexity at the, in the heart of software or something like that. And it came at a point that the software systems were so complex and organizational, you know, kind of design was complex. You have multi-teams and communication between the teams that you had to just think about the how to scale out software development differently to address that problem of scale and complexity, right? So that inspired me and I went, okay, is it possible to apply the similar principles, but in a JSON domain, in a data domain, um, and if it is, then, then what does it look like, right? That was the kind of the line of, line of thinking. In fact, I was shocked. In fact, uh, when I started looking deeper into how the big data systems were, or BI, you know, traditional BI and then kind of big data organizations and analytical organizations were designed and architecture and the technology, I, I felt really surprised that we are where we are. I felt like the, the thinking around comp and managing complexity was around probably 17 years behind what we had done in the software. Hmm. operational space. So yes, a lot of inspiration comes to that. But I have to say, uh, I, I come with a lot of empathy and kind of appreciation of the complexity of data and accessing data. The, the way that, you know, in operational systems, you can hide data behind operational endpoints and APIs so easily, that's, that's much harder to be done 
when it comes to access points that are required to abstract, you know, underlying data complexity for um, analytical workloads. So we still have um, a lot of adaptation and evolution of that thinking to be applied in the data space, but the absolute inspiration came from there. Yeah, and I, I would say, I mean, one of the things, and you're going to have a much deeper perspective about this than I do, but so certainly correct me if I'm wrong, give me feedback. My, my perspective on microservices is that one of the major changes was that we started to abstract away the networking details. In other words, we created these systems like Kubernetes, or, you know, Docker Swarm further back, said, all right, the, these systems are going to worry about all the details of where individual containers get deployed. They're going to handle the virtual networking. Software developers don't think about that stuff. You're just thinking about software. And then that allowed us to have this greater team abstraction where you could just focus on these organizational complexities of breaking down really complex processes into smaller pieces. And I feel like we're getting close to that in data. So things like Databricks and BigQuery and Snowflake and EMR, all of the all of these tools make it a lot easier, but there are still some limitations in terms we of We cover the tech the technology complexities. But yeah, I mean exactly. Yeah. And that's that's I think to, to, to your point, Jamek, it's, it's sort of like we, we've, I think the technology is getting solved and I'll touch on this in a second, but it's the organizational piece is still super challenging. Um, I mean, every organization I think that we deal with, it's the technology is always the, it's, it's the easiest and probably the last thing we talk about. We always talk about like people process and then technology in that order. If we never come to a company and we're like, hey, you should definitely implement this technology because that'll solve your problems. Like that's yeah. that's reckless, so. Yeah, I think that you're, so going back to Matt's point around kind of abstraction of complexity and just focusing on um, kind of interfaces in a way was a big leap for us to be able to, you know, to, to kind of distribute distribute work and think about independent autonomous domains and so on. The thing that is really different and it's missing and we have to move to that space is that in the case of data, traditionally we are from from technology perspective and approach perspective, we are incentivized to um, co-locate or aggregate or collect data and in fact pay it a lot of attention to this thing that we are creating and collecting and not so much uh, pay attention to, oh, you know, data could be coming from many other teams and yet we want to be able to run these workloads that requires processing data across. So let's actually focus on the, those connections and APIs and intercommunication and let's standardize those. We we sometimes forget that the cat the main catalyst for distribution of workloads through microservices was HTTP, was REST, was was agreeing that these were pretty good, flexible, yet powerful primitive to get us going. When it comes to the world of data, I, I feel, yes, we do have, I guess, JDBC and we have SQL as some sort of a pseudo, you know, relational algebraic language. But yeah. is that really enough if you're training a machine learning model across data across many places? So I think uh, th there is a complexity around uh, creating APIs that allows this, allows this distributed analytical workloads happen and we haven't been really incentivized. I, I see how Databricks like taking some st steps towards that with Delta sharing and so on, but it, uh, we are at very early stages of that. And, and we need, and I hope, and I hope the data mesh is the catalyst and it, industry forces is the catalyst yeah. for us uh, <laughs> to look at seams uh, and interconnection and communications and protocols as opposed to um, you know, yet have not a big system to collect data. Yeah, this is something Matt and I, we nerd out on this a lot. It's sort of the notion that, you know, data APIs need to be rethought. And I think data integration needs to be rethought. Yeah, with data interoperability, we, we, we yeah. talk about this for hours. We're super exciting people. Um, but, <laughs> I don't know uh, what you think. Like, this, this, is, this is the exciting stuff. Well, yeah. So, I mean, Matt, what, we have this idea of, you know, the, the, the cloud OS Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, uh, Ben Stansel has talked about this idea, too, and we yeah. write about it some in our book. And that is that we need kind of what you're talking about, Jamak. Uh, the, we need not not only should an organization. Well, let's say this. A small organization should not be creating their own APIs to exchange data. These should just be standards. Whereas like, yeah, if you're on AWS, this is the standard way in which we exchange data. And it's funny. We kind of have a lot of the components like S3 itself is a really 
great data sharing layer, except that the permission system is still a nightmare. Exactly. It's just not, okay, yeah. what about row column level permission, row level permission, or even permission on individual data sets and tables? It's just not really set up for that. And, uh, you know, people are still using Hive Metastore, which at this point is really old to try to manage those kinds of things. Databricks has Unity Catalog. It's pretty new, so it remains to be seen how that's going to go. But, like, we need these other layers of management that sit atop big storage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about that, I think that permission and ownership and identity system and access control system is such a key one. When we, again, I always go back to kind of find analogies in services and API world. You know, we, we had to resolve from kind of a centralized identity to a federated identity with, you know, kind of um, the dif different protocols we had around it. And then now even people are moving to this centralized identity. This isn't like the future. It hasn't really happened yet, but it is coming uh, to allow peer-to-peer -peer, uh, usage of APIs uh, with access control and um, authentication authorization baked in independent of who owns the service, right? So you can authenticate yourself with a completely different third-party service that then allows you to, that federated model to allow you services of others. Um, so that that that, is, that has to come. But, and it's not a, um, a vendor-specific proprietary, even, even open APIs. This is a, you know, standard, internet standard um, um, APIs, right? Um, yeah. For authentication and identity that, that's just one piece of rethinking data apis yeah i completely agree i mean i i would say actually like google bigquery and snowflake have done a great job of defining a standard data sharing layer with really fine-grained permissions but if you want to not use sql and use spark then it becomes very difficult yeah. if you want to go cross cloud it becomes very difficult and so they're yeah. not really industry standards like I, i've got to i am going to applaud the vendors efforts on this but it's like yeah we need more interop it's, not just lock early, in. it, it's early that's true yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think the other part that part of that too is um definitional integrity right so you know the, so i think metrics layers and semantics layers are becoming like you know the, the yeah cool thing, but it also drives me crazy because I feel like it's at the data warehouse level or data lake, which I think is the absolute worst spot for it, actually. That needs to be up more at the application layer where everything's being defined yeah. at the data layer. And then, you know, and but I think it kind of also that, though, it also needs to be sort of um, definitions across the board, like through each stage. Um, so you have a definition. Yeah, in fact, in fact, like Data Mesh has this concept of data product, which is one of the mm -hmm. most misused, yep. misinterpreted hijack right. <laughs> hijack concept. And, uh, what is it? What is a data product? I wish uh, I wish I had uh, I had a better command of language to choose a <laughs> I don't know better name. Um, um, yeah. So so the the concept of the data product is basically, as you said, you know, a lot of those affordances and i love this word affordance um mm -hmm. defined by don norman is like the capabilities that an object can give different users or agents in a system based on the abilities they have so this affordance of like for example providing metrics so that data is understandable or can be evaluated for fitness for different use cases by the users of data so all of these mm, kind of affordances that need to accompany data for it to be understandable, um, trustworthy, secure, you know, accessible, addressable, like I've got eight, I think I've got eight of them um, that I said, this is non-negotiable set of KPI right. characteristics that you have to have. Uh, that, that's essentially is data product. So encapsulating data and metadata and code and policy to really allow this domain oriented boundary autonomous independently, like with an independent life cycle of a data to be easily accessed, understood, discovered, used in variety of modes of access. Uh, but one of those pieces, one of those affordances is understandability and trust. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of peel that back and say, okay, what do I need to accompany with the data so that it is understandable is you actually land, land on uh, maybe a bunch of metadata, but it, maybe you also land on some code that needs to continuously run along with that data to produce this live real-time kind of metrics of, oh, this is the window of time over, over which this data is being produced, or this is the last updated time. This is the, um, you know, the, the completeness as of now, or as of 
yesterday, right? So, so all of this kind of set of metrics that you refer to that defines quality, integrity, uh, so, so essentially to bridges the gap between, you know, where the user is and where the user needs to be to actually trust to use that data and, and evaluate its fitness. Um, they are part of the data product. In fact, I, I always think this idea that we have data and then we have metadata is somewhat flawed. Yeah, that too. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's somewhat flawed because you are saying when we make such a statement, we say data, but not have this meta, which is very hard to define what meta is because you have n levels of meta, like meta of what meta, right? Um, so I actually refrain from that duality of meta and data, and I use the shortcut of saying it's a data product. It means it actually has not only the facts that happened, the data that we aggregated, but necessarily always has to accompany all of the other pieces of information that is relevant to that data for that point of time for that data to be trusted and understand it, un understandable and, and, and so on. And I call it then, it's a data product, right? Um, and when you, sorry, going back to your point, Matt, that you sorry, um, Joe, that you said, okay, we put this metadata too late, and that's how you get it closer, closer to the source, because next to your source, you have a collection of, you have a set of data products that right from the beginning are designed to externalize data responsibly. As yeah, well. I mean, what, what do most products have when you, when you go to a store, they have like a barcode, right? I, I wish there was yeah. like the equivalent of something like that for data, where it's just, it's a contract. This is what it is. Yeah. Um, Yes, Contra yes, data, data contracts. Oh, contracts, let's talk about data contracts, another buzzword that gets like... <laughs> <laughs> carried over from the software. Da data yeah. escrow, is there anything else that we did? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, contracts had it, actually contracts remind me of a different, it, it evokes a different thought in me. Like when we talk about contracts, I thought about this kind of, you know, in the services world, we move toward kind of consumer driven contracts as a way of consumers telling the services, what do they expect right. from the, the service to do? It, it can't be directly translated to data, and I'll tell you why, but, uh, but it is an articulation of an expectation and agreement yeah. right, between the consumers and the providers. The, the tricky thing about data is that it's different, and I think that's why it's just this whole data API is just such a fascinated space because uh, there are some finding things about data that are different from APIs. And then, yes, there's there, there's so much learning from APIs. When it comes to data sharing APIs, actually, I'll turn this back to you. What do you think is the main difference between um, if I was, you know, if we were like putting our heads together and defining these kind of data APIs, and I said, look, guys, there's this thing, consumer-driven contracts for services why don't we why don't we do that why don't we get our consumers define these contracts of what their expectations are from the data and then you know they say that they expect this bell curve or they expect this you know kind of set of fields and what do you think would be the main difference that we can't just directly bring that idea and concept and apply it to data what's 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 different about data contracts Sorry for doing this to you, but I couldn't. No, no, this is great. We, we love these open-ended conversations that take unexpected turns. I would say if the data exists to fulfill that contract in the first place, that'd be the first place I would probably, one of the first places I would start is can I even um, fulfill your request um, per this contract that you've set, set out? So, mm -hmm. and, and that's where I think the big difference is with data versus maybe an API or an API. It, software engineering is very much about a set of like maybe requirements in terms of functionality data has the extra layer of being well um what is the well what is the data first of all like what's in it and then you know you can dive many layers into that as well like context meaning types etc cetera, etc cetera. but that, that i don't know i i feel like i'm answering I think we're around the, same, the same area that i'm thinking but um I, I love Matt, what you, you tend to kind of go off in the left field with the thoughts. What, what do you think about this? <laughs> I mean, I mean, would we relate this back to like expectations? Not not to cite a particular vendor here, but just the notion it's a of book applying by Charles Dickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Of so, applying expectations to data and saying, all right, data system, data source, 
what do you know about this data? What can you tell me about the distribution? What can you tell me about the presence of nulls in different well, fields? Well, but it's also that, apply? but it's also like, what, what is, mm -hmm. the, you know, we always talk about how transformations are really where you're going to get the ROI out of your data. Like, what do you intend to do with it? And so that's also part of the contract. Is it possible for me to even do the, these transformations that you're requiring, for example, um, whether that's for analytics or for machine learning? Um, are the features available and is it usable? So yeah, there's a lot of um there's both 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 really good thoughts and answers. I what do you I, think? I agree. Um one thing I would say is that we can't solve in a traditional kind of expectation-driven development of data, is that um with data you have these unbounded expectations. And by that by unbounded yeah. is that for data, you have this future people that will come and look into the past data and have a new set of kind of expectations and requirements and usage for that data, right? We retrospectively, most of the time, we're retrospectively analyzing the data. And if you are developing, to your just your point, like, like what is the data that I even have to put in this data set? And you were, if you were just driving that decision based on what the customer or consumers that you know today want, right? You're basically excluding this unbounded set of consumers that are coming in future and looking at the past to get value and discover trends and, and so on. And I think that's that's a tricky part about expectation-driven or consumer-driven product. Well, uh, it's kind of like the difference between like a, a contract and writing like the U.S. Constitution. Right. So maybe the U.S. Constitution anticipated a lot of ambiguity in the future, like you don't know, but at least there's checks and balances. And maybe, maybe that's one way of looking at it where it's not necessarily a um, a fixed contract, but more a, a set of um, fixed, uh, maybe not even fixed, but just kind of guardrails really that can be interpreted. Because sort of like sort of sort of, sort of the, the future decision maker might be your Supreme Court, for example. Well, it seems like maybe when you're dealing with these vast data sets, the limits maybe need to be a little bit softer. In other words, it's not quite like I call it an API. I get a single, essentially a single row, right? I get a single JSON object back, and if it's not compliant with the contract, then it causes a problem. Whereas with data, maybe you just need to send alerts if the data doesn't comply. I mean, one thing we talk about a lot is the fact that data and analytics is very entropic. That is, it just like, it changes with outside your control because so much of it comes not only from other teams, but outside your own walls. So to take a basic example, if you're looking at web event data and you want to know something about the agents, the user agents you're going to see coming in. Well, those can change all the time. And not only that, but some new botnet can come online and generate all new user agents. And like, good luck as the consumer stipulating what the possible user agents should right be. Right in the contract. Oh, they yeah, violated my contract. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> and, and, and for that reason, I think that balancing act of, okay, what do, I, what do we know about the data as the providers? It's our authority and our knowledge of the context that can design what the data could be and sharing that and balancing that with what the current consumers want and hypothesizing what the future consumers want and like managing the, the, the cost and effort of keeping that data and sharing that data and evolving it and you know evolving it over time. Just that balancing acts such a such an art. And I think that's yeah. the uh, beauty of I guess this new role of data product owner that's my expectation is like mm -hmm. data product ownership by the team by the you know by the data domain teams essentially uh, and its role of the data product owner has to do is like strike a balance between all of these different forces right and then the provider of the data becomes uh, ha has a big say because they, they really they have the context they, they know a lot about the context but they, they can't just ignore the consumer and how the data wants to be used and they can't put <laughs> ignore the future than what the future could be, right? So it's, uh, I think it's a fascinating job to have. Yeah, it's a tough job too, right? It's a very tough job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say it's fascinating, but yeah, um, but it, in fascinating ways, uh, it's fascinating. So, um, yes, yes. Yeah. Kind of back to, to data mesh, like, you know, it's, there's, a, I think there's, um, I, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of talk about data mesh right now. Um, and I think, and in some cases, I'm not sure of, if people are um, correctly interpreting it sometimes, or maybe um, um, I guess correctly explaining it. Do you, do you find this as well, or maybe it gets a bit misinterpreted or misconstrued? Yeah, I think um, um, yes. I think there is a challenge with 
um, kind of understanding it by, you know, people that have been, you know, for decades in the data space and they have a, you know, kind of they have internalized what data management and access to data and what good data should look like. And th those internalizations are based on, you know, decades of very fundamental assumptions that data mesh is challenging, right? So for those folks to bridge the gap, and, and that's that problem is also exacerbated by not having tangible like reference implementations and technologies that natively support this model. So you have to bridge this kind of cognitive gap of coming from a very different system of thinking to this new model of thinking and, and to bridge that and without having like a you know, a specific implementation of it because it's more of a vision and idea and then implementations are kind of custom implementations at the moment behind the walls. Um, so I think people kind of really struggle to bridge the gap. For example, a lot of the traditional kind of data management thinking is about optimizing modeling of the data for various queries and optimizing again for the performance, right? So the way the star schemas are designed and kind of that, that angle of another day warehousing has many different angles, but that particular angle of it. So a lot of the questions that I ask is that, oh, how do I, if the data is distributed across these data APIs through these data products, how do I do a distributed join or how do I, how do, I do that effectively? And then my answer is that for us to be able to get to the right solutions, we need to, again, decompose that problem to, okay, there is a physical layer optimization that we have to do, like the systems creating the right indices and storage where the locality of the storage and that sort of stuff. That's kind of internal complexity that Matt just talked about, like, you know, the technology needs to push down. Mm -hmm. And then there is a logical layer kind of optimization for this human experience that we have to create that, yes, we can do, in fact, Imagine, like, what does it take to do um, the composability of the data across different nodes? Well, the first step is you need to be able to discover where the nodes are that, let's say we want to compose information about customers across five different data products. First, you need to be able to discover data products that have something to say about customer. Okay, we did that. Then you need to discover and understand what is it about customer that each of them are storing. One is about order, one is about profile, one is about, you know, address, other things. And then you need to discover or be able to correlate customers across different nodes, mm -hmm. right? Different different data products. So it's an identity system. So that's kind of a logical layer concern that that we can then solve for, right? That, that's not really hard to solve. Uh, so yeah, so I think this bridging the gap is one of the main challenges to understand data mesh. Uh, what I find is that folks that in fact have gone through the microservices that that they come from that operational distributed system kind of thinking and they dabbled with data recently, they have a much easier uh, kind of journey in understanding and internalizing data mesh because they they have gone through this organizational, the social and the technical change mm -hmm. together once before. You just have to apply to a new uh, new space. So. Uh, and then the you know the the kind of the um, there is a third group of people that are vendors that have been kind of pushed to be almost jolted overnight because of the uh, the adopters and the market forces to say sell me a data marketing product right mm -hmm. so they have to kind of they have they they've been positioned in a difficult place that you know they had a product strategy they had a nucleus of a set of products that they were solving under whatever banner it was before. And then they have to overnight say, oh, no, we are we are a data mesh platform or we are a data mesh solution. And some of them maybe do a good job in kind of articulating, okay, what angle I'm solving. And some of them just like search and replace, I don't know, data mesh. <laughs> <data -ish>. So <laughs> that, that, that leads to this misconception because when I talk about data mesh to a lot, I hear other folks talk about data mesh, they're really bringing the vendor's marketing message forward and there are th that's their understanding of that's um uh that you know th that that might be misrepresented right but now there's a book out so you can just read the book and then <laughs> learn all about it right that was yeah. the only reason i read wrote the book i i actually said i think in one of the 
I don't know, perfect in some way, that I wish I could write this book five years from now. Um, but I felt that there was so much noise and movement that I had to write something to say why and what yeah. and how, right? I in, intentionally stayed from technology because that would rapidly change and make the book kind of obsolete in, in three months um so that you know we can go back to it but unfortunately a lot of us are just reading can't read beyond whatever the tweet length is now what is it is it 280 character how many characters we don't we don't read more than that i don't know when you when you wrote the articles what was it 2019 i think your first article came out on data mesh yeah i mean that exploded on the scene i was like it definitely reminded me of like other things i'd seen in data and technology where it's like okay it, it this is, it's a big idea. Like this isn't just some like random person shouting at the sky. Um, maybe that's what you were when you first wrote it, but then all of a sudden people were like, oh my gosh, he's, this is interesting. And so, um, and then I, I kind of took on a life. Before that article, I was for a couple of years, I was oh, interesting. talking behind the doors to my colleagues globally, looking mm. at all the projects we were doing globally, talking to head of analytics, head of data, CDOs, getting their wheels turning, seeing what the problems are. So it, it was, and, it, and I got frustrated enough to, in uh, 2018, I can't remember, or early 2019, to go and give a talk first to see like, where I get attacked. Can I talk about this stuff publicly? And then I got encouraged to write about it. Well, I mean, it, it was kind of on, on the level of like what, what Copernicus did or something where it's like the earth isn't the uh, center of the, you know, of the solar and so forth. And it's kind of, it reminded me of like on that level in, in the data world where it's like, okay, like um, it was, uh, I think perceived as maybe slightly heretical when it came out. Um, and I think in, in, a, in a good way, of course, because that's where the best ideas come from. Um, but it was definitely, it splashed on the steam. Walk me through that real quick, the evolution of the idea. So you came, you started talking about it. Um, with your close colleagues, and you wrote the articles, and then uh, tell me yeah, how the, how the I, I saw the problem firsthand. So I was I had two um, kind of concurrent positions within Thalworks. So we are a global consultancy company, but we build software platforms, digitalization, organization transformation. We do all of that. We're super hands on, and uh, so our hiring process is fairly tough. So we get pretty good, uh, really good kind of software engineers and practitioners. And we pride ourselves in, uh, as a consultancy in um, software excellence. So we have had traditionally a lot of innovation coming at ThoughtWorks. So I had access, I guess, uh, to a, a great mind hive, you know, within ThoughtWorks. And then I, will, I am part of the tech advisory board for ThoughtWorks that generates um, an article we put out twice a year called Technology Radar. So what it is, in fact, is a, sample of all of the projects that we are executing globally, let's say 10,000 people like, you know, writing code or, or, or building software or doing data projects. And then we gather information about technology that works or doesn't work or need to be assessed or is awesome, should be, you know, adopted. And we've discussed that like vigorously, like over the course of five days with, you know, 15, 16 people in my position. And then we write about it. We filter them out and then we write about them. So I was seeing what the state of adoption of technology is and what are what the tools we are playing with, right, in our tool toolkit. And it was really shocking for me, again, that the, the state of maturity of some of the data technology. On the other hand, I was a portfolio director for kind of I'm in San Francisco for West Coast of US. What it means is that we I get visibility to all of the inbounds and all of the projects we do for our clients, at least in the West Coast. And as you can imagine, again, I work with fairly technically advanced companies here, you know, right, that have invested in first generation, second generation, go to cloud kind of data, data platform. So I was seeing that they were struggling with scale. Like they would hire the most amazing head of analytics and data science team. But they, they, they can't do anything because they still don't have access to trustworthy data. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then I kind of, okay, I went and, and, and the third angle of it was people like hiring data engineers, hiring specialists. It was just an Achilles heel. Like we couldn't get this. And I'm sure a lot of other, you know, companies have this recruitment issue. So I went and really looked deep into implementations, architecture, the challenges. And I went, okay, this is complexity at the heart of data. 
at an organizational level directly related to technology and architecture. And we solved this problem. We solved this problem 10, 12 years ago in the operational world. We were exactly where we are today with digitization that happened with web and mobile and all of that with back in you know, the 2010s, um, around kind of 2010 with microservices. So why can't we, can we learn from that? Let's learn from that and bring that experience uh, to, to data. And then I started kind of picking, you know, the great minds brain as to see who responded. And some were excited, some were, no, this is, this cannot be done. This is heresy. Like I was told actually by some of my colleagues to not publish the article. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I, you know, it was, uh, it was, I guess, controversial, like even to do that. So I, I, I put it out with the knowledge of, um, you know, I may get ridiculed or attacked or, or whatever. But I think what happened was the problem that I was articulating, I was seeing wasn't just unique to the West Coast of the US. It was, right. it was pretty much global. And that um, empathy for the people and the problems that all kinds of roles of people were um, seeing um, touched people's hearts. And, um, and a lot of the feedback that I got was, hmm, why didn't I think of that? Like, that seems kind of rational. And kind of we went from there to, okay, let's actually get real about this. Like, let's, with some of these ingredients that I brought to data mesh was already being implemented and tested on some of our clients and say, okay, let's, let's actually start implementing this. So the next three years was about just refining and building and hit your head against the wall of technology and organization. Um, and, and, and this is just the beginning. This is it just like a, yeah. I don't. I don't know what your take is on like how what the timeline is for for like you know broader adoption of data mesh. But I think it it really feels like it reminds me of the arguments um, with microservices many many years ago, where it's like oh that's uh, you know the monolith people were like oh that's stupid like why would you ever do that um, you know. But then it, it but now it's sort of the uh, you know I think it's pretty standard in a lot of software engineering yeah. practices. But it also feels like in data, data is in this weird spot where I feel like in general software engineering practices are getting adopted. Data ops is a big one. Finally, you got data observability, all these other things, um, all these practices that software engineering was doing for a long time. And in fact, when I tell people ask me, well, where's data going? And I'm like, why don't you just look at what software engineering has been doing? And like pretty, pretty much if there's something there that hasn't been done, um, that's probably gonna get adopted at some point. When we've quietly seen some major technology changes too. I mean, one of the motivations for centralizing data is that you would sign this multi-million dollar contract for like an MPP system, a lot of money. And it was always space limited, right? You were always fighting with space and resources on that system. So you'd have this centralized like data warehouse team, like, all right, here's what can go in this system. We have to get rid of these tables because we're overflowing. It it's like a tiny home. It's like a tiny, it was basically like a tiny yeah. home. And the technology change is that now the, the, with the cloud, it's not that you have a distributed system like an MPP, it's that you have a distributed system of distributed systems. In other words, you can have many different clusters and you have virtually unlimited storage. And so that this need for gatekeeping kind of disappeared, but it's taking a while for the organizational possibilities to catch up to that reality. Like we don't have to centralize everything anymore because we don't need one team to own that entire system, be it Hadoop or Teradata or whatever. Yes. Yeah, I agreed. Um, it's just that, uh, you know, I think for the primitives, the programming primitives, data management primitives, the primitives of the systems that we need to work with uh, need to level up uh, to speak to that kind of decentralized model of working with data. The primitives are not there yet. They're totally not there yet. Yeah. And that's where I think there's a lot of, I would say it's kind of, we're just, almost blindly copying software engineering too. It's like, oh, that worked here. So let's apply that to data. And it's kind of like this um, almost like lift and shift in a way. Um, okay. Yeah, I think we're we're in absolute agreement. We should definitely talk offline about, I think, some yeah. deeper thoughts we have on this because it's, yeah. it's very, we're, we're, like, we're, we're pretty, basically trying to rewrite this whole treatise right now and just the whole world of interop and it's... Uh, yeah, and, and, and I would have put, put a question out there. Is yeah. there a... This whole data versus app, you know, kind of like duality that we have. Like, I'm an app developer. I know how to deal with my database and data, and that's a, that's a model of working that I have. And you're a data person. 
you're doing big data analytics and and that and as the and and usually we it worked in the past because the flow was one way right you get the data from those applications and then you collect them somewhere and you start doing analytics on a downstream or in creating models yeah. and this feedback loop is now tighter because the analytics and data gets embedded into that has to get embedded to those applications to be the applications of the future right they become data driven so as that loop feedback loop gets tighter and the teams that are involved need to you know be more cross-functional does it make sense no it makes total sense and i don't know if you're just like listening to our other conversation just a bit ago um yeah no it's it, we wrote about this in our last chapter in our book we call it, so we're we're, th we're thinking okay so like what's the successor to the modern data stack like because there's when we kind of say, I, mean, I think the modern data stack was really good in that it, it um democratized to a large extent exactly what matt described which is these um you know hyper expensive um you know very static uh, data warehouses and really brought these this technology to the masses in a way that's consumable by the credit card um, it's easy to set up, easy to tear down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That I think was a big, the big, if I were to look at what the modern data set contributed to the world, it's more of a, a behavioral pattern and an accessibility pattern. But I think you're absolutely right. So what we thought was a successor is what we call the live data stack. I don't know, buzzword, whatever, but it's like bringing the application layer closer to the data in, in, in almost a seamless way. Because it's like, why does, why does the data warehouse have to sit, sit at the center of everything, right? That, I mean, that, that works for some things, but I, I'm questioning especially with, with um, you know, the popularity of streaming, for example, um, you know, real-time automation, whether heuristically or with ML, like why, why do we need, yeah. um, you know, the, these sort of bottlenecks when really everything can work in almost a seamless fashion. And what this also means now is, um, and one of the things that we, you know, with, with data mesh, it's like the data team, I think the data team and the software teams are going to be much more unified at the end of the day as a result of this because like, it seems like a very artificial distinction um yeah yeah the modern data stack is an interesting one because if you think about <clears throat> when i but from my perspective i mean i could be completely wrong but i feel what we did was we deconstructed those big you know data systems and overlaid a bunch of like open useful tools and technologies on top of a data processing management model that was still that previous based on the previous paradigm so we still have data extraction data ingestion data movement you know data processing data storage right so it's still that move data from one end and process it and then transform it and put another the, the etl and storage model uh, but now we just broke down the big monolith and a proprietary system and we came up with lots of smaller system that is still beautifully fit into that last paradigm. Uh, the, the future, I think, future modern, the next generation modern data stack, I would hope, I mean, of course, I'm totally biased on the data mesh model, is recomposing perhaps those tools or a new set of tools that work on a different meta architecture, right? It work on kind of a mesh and distributed um, architecture more natively. But I think they had a, as you said, that, that previous gen like the modern data stack we call today had a big role in democratizing those activities sure. and um, transformation. Well, and, and in fact, what I see is almost a back to the future moment in some ways where I think microservices and data mesh are actually going to be the same thing in a lot of cases, because as you tie it back to the application layer and data is sort of integrated in the app, then you kind of back to where you originally got your inspiration from. Maybe, I don't know, it's hard to predict the future, but that's one very likely scenario, I would say. Yeah. Very likely or likely, I don't I, know. I think it's, it's very likely. Say, yeah. I think there are technology tools you need that don't that aren't being used right now in the microservice world. So for one, for example, one thing we talk about is you can't really serve because of the cap theorem, you can't really serve transactional workloads and analytics workloads in the same database. But what you can yeah. do is set up another layer that's pretty yeah. seamless to the user so they don't see it, that just yeah. you stream right into an analytics database. And I think that's the kind of integration that's going to enable this. Exactly. And then, yeah. Yeah, I, I call those like in the data mesh language, like we have this concept of kind of data product as a very primitive concept, like element, you know, basic element of your architecture. And some of these data products, whose job is actually providing those analytical data processing or data access APIs and maintaining that data, but but some of those are kind of aligned to the source. 
So mm. they're sitting as a, like a satellite kind of entity right next to your application and application database, and you choose your model of integration between those two, but mm. those are aligned to your source data and the life cycle is more aligned to the changes in the life cycle of your data versus some data products that are more downstream and aggregate and uh, or, or more downstream and kind of fit for purpose for, for different use cases that you have. So uh, that's one future, right? As you said, there's another layer or it's another entity kind of satelliting around your applications or, you know, maybe, I don't know, Google's of the world come out with this magnificent universal database technology that you really care about. But, but, I, but, I, but I even push back on that. I said, even if, Maybe I just I'm not creative enough in my thinking, but I think even if we have as a physical layer, right, that mm. universal transactional analytical workload can be all represented as one. Still, the the at the people level, the concerns of an application developer in terms of storage and sharing the data are very different from the concerns of a data product developer that thinks about the analytical use cases. So, so I think at the human level, you still have those separations but they they just come and work very closely to sit next to each other yeah and one one thing we talk about a lot is the need to rethink data modeling and so i think what tends to happen right now is application developers only think of in many cases think of data modeling in terms of object-oriented programming well it's like a unit test it's a unit test and also yeah. they you know they create objects and then orm creates the schema for them and then the analytics people then have to untangle a big mess of schema that's not intended for analytics. And I think the future is that those teams sit together, you've got your analytics on the cross-functional team, you've got your software developer, they say, okay, what data model is gonna serve this data product? Meaning it serves the transactional use case, but it can also flow directly into analytics in a way that's very useful. But then the nature of analytics, we, we think also needs to change. I mean, analytics typically is meant to answer, right now with dashboarding, it's like what and when type questions. Think about like, what are you gonna do with that if you get it? Like, and in my opinion, a lot of that should just be automated. Like what action are you gonna take? Yeah, the human user needs to become a machine that acts upon, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it takes an automated action. I think that yeah. the, the, the what and when and the trends and the human looking at the data is still gonna remain as an important digital experience mm -hmm. of people. I don't really, this, this separation of, oh, I have a bunch of dashboards here. I look at, I, I feel, that that experience in future should change to you know i'm i'm in, interacting to do my job i have a digital experience that goes through this you know steps that i need to do to do my job and part of that digital experience could be dashboards and analytics and that that's how the analytics would get closer and closer to that digital user experience that's sure. like a separate thing right and then and part of that and, and you're right that probably a big subset of those human okay i i looked at this data and, and then what what am i going to do with it right they right. come automated actions that look back into those applications right because it focuses and analysts can focus on why type questions like why is something yeah. happening right that's a that's diagnostic and prescriptive um and so there's just a lot of cycles i think there's just a lot of ceremony right now that we wish wouldn't happen um but you know that's yeah. I, I guess why we're all kind of heretical in this uh chat oh, so. i'm cognizant of the questions that are coming do we have yeah. time to yeah, ask yeah, i'd love to and we can go we can go past two or three like or whatever time it is i mean that's let's actually start um these these um let me see here um actually sorry scott's because he had the first question here and it was a good one um is that my friend scott which scott is this scott taylor no, Scott oh, I think um, I owe Scott Taylor an apology and a bunch of responses that I haven't responded because I haven't had a chance. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Uh, so Scott Taylor, um, uh, check your DMs. Um, but he asks, uh, you, you talk and write a lot about analytical data, but how does data match help operational data? Yeah, I think this was just the conversation we had, right, a minute ago, that you have your applications, that the concern of applications right now, let's say you have a, uh, I don't know, a payment service or something like that. The, the concern for that operational data to perform the operational payment is well i just made a payment did the transaction complete did it fail did it success let's let's store the state of that transaction right that i just made a payment uh, that's pretty much like keep the current state and retrieve the current last state and and that's pretty much it uh, a lot of writes um a lot of small reads um and you know concurrent updates and things like that when it comes to 
uh, analytic. And I know this is a very fuzzy boundary, and I'm not trying to say like there's a very clear boundary, but when it, in my mind, when it comes to analytics, uh, it's usually a lot of reads. So large reads, I want to see the trends of all of the payments of all of the you know users over over a course of a very long time since infinity you know from the beginning of time and i want to be able to exploit patterns in that whether i'm you know creating i don't know some sort of a regression model to um to improve what part of my you know payment operation needs to be optimized or i am showing a trend where the most payments have failed at what time and when and you know how application updates affects the payments like there's a ton of you know kind of analysis that you can do on that data so so the nature of that access is different than what data mesh tries to solve is close the gap between those two so create a model that allows um, the operational data become accessible for those analytical use cases um, by closing the gap between ops you know a map person and your data person by generating these data products and owning them by cross-functional team. And, um, and every data product can be participating in a global analytical uh, kind of um, query um, independently and autonomously. And another thing I think about here is this new generation of streaming analytics systems that mm. kind of crosses the lines between operational analytics. So for example, um, uh, Apache Beam or Apache Flink, where you can use windowing and say, all right, I want to look at the last five minutes continuously and look at statistics. And then if statistics go out of bounds, then I'm going to create an event that goes somewhere else, maybe in my application to trigger something that happens. That, yeah. That's where things start to get really interesting in terms of creating new types of data products. In fact, I would say, you know, you think of your real traditional data products like Uber, where Uber is a key part of the experience. It, presumably, they're already doing all kinds of things like this to set prices, to adjust where drivers go, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I am a big fan of um, kind of processing or flow-based programming or flow-based processing of the data or stream processing, we call it in the modern days. Uh, sometimes people get uh, kind of conflates the stream processing to like event processing and Kafka and so on. What I really love about stream processing is that you have this fairly flexible model of data processing by uh, this concept of windowing, right? So your window of time could be as small as a snapshot moment in time and event, or your window of time could be larger. It could be days or it could be hours or minutes or whatever the window of time is. And that's a very, and you're continuously just processing these windows of time. And of course that affects how you uh, even make calculations, like a standard, something, something as simple as a standard deviation. You can write that formula, actually encode that formula in very, two different ways. Uh, one way is like, give me all the data and I do a standard deviation for you. Or you can say, actually, I'm going to keep the sum and the number of counts and like a few different parameters and I can, at any point in time, I can give you a standard deviation. So, uh, so I think that that concept of flow-based and stream processing is a super powerful and beautiful concept because it removes this kind of dichotomy of like batch versus right. And, and you just have one model that is flexible to do, to do just, just expand you know, or, or um, shorten your window of time. I, I love it personally. Actually, I'm going to ask another question that I thought of earlier that's near and dear to Scott's heart, I believe. And that is to, to throw out a very enterprisey term. Okay, so you have this notion of master data management. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like you have to manage IDs across all these different domains, for example. Does data mesh make master data management more important? Or is there some mm -hmm. different paradigm that we should be using to manage IDs across all these different um, kind of silos, right? But silos that are meant to work together now. Yeah, I actually talked about this in, in one of the uh, webinars presented. I think the objectives of master data management remain, like having a consistent kind of understanding of what are those master data key uh, business concepts within your organizations and um, have a way of kind of correlating that across domains that that remains, right? You, you want to have, you know, kind of a global understanding of your customer, no matter where the touch point with the customer is, whether you're thinking about marketing customer in marketing domain or, or other domains. However, what changes with data mesh is that traditionally master data management has done centrally. You bring all the data into some master data management tool, and then we create this hierarchy of entities and we, you know, harmonize the data and rationalize and all of that. And we give you one ID and that's quite late 
downstream, right? Uh, in the in the value stream of the life cycle of the data in your organization at the organization level. So what data mesh encourages is to achieve the same outcome, but do that in a distributed fashion, in distributed mm -hmm. architecture. How distributed architecture achieves consistency and harmony. Uh, so um, there's no system to go to buy, <laughs> at least right now, uh, but you have to think about, okay, this, this notion of data products that every domain can produce, um, there are a set of cross-functional requirements or standards or governance, and that goes into the co concept of like kind of federated governance. There are, there are some characteristics of these data products that need to be consistently defined and applied across the organization. And one of those characteristics is the, perhaps the unification of IDs, an ID system where the customer information is exposed from an order domain and marketing domain um, globally assigned these IDs. And again, global ID management itself, you can have a distributed model or you can have a centralized model for the ID management. And, and you, kind of, you can kind of continue this trend and say, how can I achieve composability and linking customer information across different domains um, while doing that without centrally, centrally, centralizing the data itself and centralizing the harmonization process of the data itself. It's almost like you need an EDI for something like this. Yeah, yeah. EDI, what is it, electronic data, something or interface? I mean, it's like basically a way that like retailers, for example, um, keep all oh, their uh, ordering systems and everything in check. So it's like, you know, you're consistently getting the same data because it's, mm -hmm. Yeah, imagine you're like Walmart or something, right? Like you get you have thousands of vendors with like thousands of SKUs. How are you going to keep track of everything? And I yeah, think exactly. It's it's yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. And you have to bake that like shift left, like the database shifts left a lot of the when you think of shift left in terms of life cycle of the data from the origin to the consumer. So uh, left to the origin as as much as possible. Back to the origin. That's interesting. Cool. Um, so, so just to follow up on that yeah. real quick. So, so basically we're saying that like master data management, common IDs, it does require some centralization. You do have to have, someone has to decide what the customer ID is going to be, but, but it's collaborative. In other words, you work together across teams to make this happen. And it's not as command and control as it used to be in the old days where you have a central yeah. community who says, this is what everyone's going to do. It's kind of this more yeah. open process. Cool. Yeah, anytime we want to agree upon something, uh, you have um, different algorithms to achieve consensus, right? So you have to have some sort of a consensus mechanism to uh, to agree that this particular ID is the same customer that we recognize in the other domain. And sometimes for those consensus algorithms, you need a centralized entity to make that call. Um, Sometimes you vote, sometimes, you know, there's like different, different consensus algorithms for that. That's really interesting. Sorry, my dog's going to town upstairs. <laughs> alarm clock, apparently. Yeah, she always does this at the end of the show. She, she just she seems to. Yeah, the kids get out of school from the Montessori school, and she just keeps barking at all the parents that walk by. Um, well, cool. I guess it's a, probably a good place to wrap then. Um, so... Um, Love to have you on the show. Love to have you on again. Um, I think we could probably keep talking for hours. Um, uh, do you want to promote your book, or how would, how can people find out more about Data Mesh? Um, don't Google it because you get all those ads. <laughs> oh boy, really? Okay. <laughs> well, on you. If you Google, after you get like a ton of advertisements of buy my product or buy this other product. Wow. Um, if you uh, I don't know. If you want to hear from the horse's mouth, you can go on Amazon and look for Data Mesh book, and there's Data Mesh um, uh, getting value, data driven value at scale. So the O'Reilly book, if you have a membership of O'Reilly, you can access O'Reilly. Um, uh, if you want a free access to just peek into the book, uh, ping me on LinkedIn or Twitter or somewhere. I share a link that gives you free access to O'Reilly platform for, I think, a month. I'm not sure exactly nice. how long. And that gives you enough time to hopefully go through the content of the book. So, so that's uh, I think that's one place that I would encourage people that's to get cool. started. It's a great book too. We've been reading it, and it's actually really well written. I think it's one of those books that's going to go down as like one of the classics in the tech and data industry. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, but it's actually really good. The ideas are fantastic. So, um, I am yeah. a very self-critical person. I held the book for 30 seconds in my in my hand, and I went, "Oh my goodness." 
this can be fixed and this can be improved and images were great scale. So oh, uh, great, great to hear that from the audience. It, it's, uh, it's, it's read easily and hopefully it's helpful. Oh, this is, this is one of the classics. I've, I've read a lot of tech books and it's just, it has the vibe of like, this is something that's different. Um, something that's going to be, um, you know, um, it's going to hold its weight and you know, uh, hopefully you get a chance to, to revise it in a second edition with all the things. I know that it's the same thing. Our, our book, we just uh, submitted it to O'Reilly this week and we're just like, crap, we need to add these other things. Dang it. Um, it's like, it's, it's like clawing it's back. Like, done. hey, can we add a couple things in there? Um, is, your, is your book uh, now already published? Uh, no. Or is coming? It's just going into production, which means that yes. it's heading into proofreading. They're converting it into a Riley native format from Google Drive, Google format. Um, we're going to have to, you know, proofread it ourselves. I, Your so. work is not done. You're not done no. yet. No, no. <laughs> oh, thank you. Advice for us, having gone through the process. Yeah. Well, congratulations to get to this. Oh, point. thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, and congrats to you. I just, yeah, you know how hard it is. Well, maybe we'll send you a copy for a early preview. So have a look at it. So yeah. awesome. Um, well, thanks to the audience. Uh, sorry we didn't get to a lot of the questions. I think we're just having so much fun talking that we just kind of lost track of time. But um, again, thanks thanks again for being on the show. Um, Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for sharing your platform to get the data mesh worth, you know, out there. So I'm yeah. very grateful. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Have a good one, Drek. Take care. Bye. Take care. Great having you here.